Appreciate everybody being here today. Let's take our Bibles. Hopefully you have one with you. If not, uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you. And if you need a pew Bible, we're on page 916, Galatians chapter number 5, once again this morning. If you're new to Hillcrest, we've been in a series of studies on Sunday mornings from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Probably the first letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. He wrote 13 of them that we have recorded in our New Testaments. This was probably the first uh, and uh, one of the most important, to be sure, uh, because Paul deals with the subject that we have been calling the essential gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God has acted out of a heart of love to deliver us from the bondage of sin unto a right relationship with himself, and he's done that with no contribution of any human being whatsoever. He's done it through the person and work, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, plus nothing. And for the first four chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's been setting a solid theological foundation concerning what theologians call justification or salvation by faith alone. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. That's the very heartbeat of the gospel plus nothing else. There were those who followed uh, Paul into Galatia who were adding stuff to the gospel. It It had become a Christ plus gospel, Christ plus this, Christ plus that, Christ plus your performance, Christ plus your individual contribution. Paul was incensed by that and fires off a letter that's a little warm in tone, and I don't mean warm in terms of kind, I mean warm in terms of a bit angry, uh, because everything that he had stood for, preached, and believed was potentially at stake. Uh, For the last couple of weeks, we've turned our attention to the second theme of the letter to the Galatians, which is our freedom in Christ. Our faith in Christ establishes us as children of God, But then once Christ saves us, thank God, he sets us free from the bondage of sin and death. And Paul's kind of spending a little bit of time waxing practically, as modern preachers do. He was in that sense a modern preacher, strong theology, practical application. He does that in virtually all of his letters. And he's helping us to know, A, that we are free, and then B, how to live in freedom. What does that life of freedom mean? look like. Today, we're going to continue in that theme by looking at the last part of Galatians chapter 5. It will come as no surprise for you believers to hear me say this morning uh, that the Christian life is a battle. It's a battle. Uh, We did a wedding. Brad's not here this morning because he married off his oldest daughter yesterday evening. Isn't that great? So we congratulate them At the rehearsal dinner, the mother of the groom stood up and basically said that marriage is not easy. Marriage can be very difficult. And the Christian life is like that. In fact, Christian life's not only a difficult life. Can I just say this morning, it's an impossible life. You go out and try to live for Jesus all by yourself in your own strength. You won't be able to do it. So it's impossible, but it is possible with Christ in me as we've sung so well this morning. Today's Mother's Day, and every mother here knows full well that raising children to maturity is a battle. If a mother comes up to me this morning and said, Pastor, I just don't agree with that, 
I had nothing but a good time raising those kids. I'm going to be asking, what y'all put in her coffee this morning? <laughs> uh, it's mostly a good time, but there are challenging times. It's a battle. It's a battle of the minds, battle of the hearts, battle of the wills. Facing that kind of stuff is not for cowards, and the only way to do your job successfully is to know God's plan for raising children, to know God's plan for marriage. And uh, God does have a plan. So you got to know that plan. You got to stay true to that plan. You got to walk according to that plan with Christ in you. And with regard to raising children, you got to do that until the time has come where you have successfully pushed them out of the nest. And even then, you're still struggling right along with them for as long as you're around. Christian life's a battle too. And not only against those worldly forces around us, most of the time preachers talk, church, we're in a battle. We're talking about battling against the devil and battling against the world forces that are hostile against us. And there are forces that rage beyond us, no question about it. But let me just say this morning, as believers, there's a constant battle raging inside of you every moment of every day. I'm calling it this morning the war within, and I'm talking to mature Christian people or new believers. I'm talking to people of faith this morning when I say there is a covert war, a secret war that's going on on the inside of you. Some, sometimes nobody knows it's going on but you, but you know it's there. The Bible couches this war within as a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And it's a constant battle that rages in the life of every believer and will rage until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when He gives us those magnificent, glorified, resurrected bodies, and the battle will forever be over. But until then, there is a war within, a battle between what you want and what God wants, and it's declared instantly from the time you became justified by faith in Jesus Christ, trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. This is what's reflected in Galatians chapter 5 as Paul continues to elaborate on the Christian life of freedom, what we might call the sanctified life of the justified believer. Let's begin our reading this morning by looking at Galatians 5.16, and we'll read almost to the end of the chapter. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen? Be on the screen if you need it. But I say, walk by the Spirit, <clears throat> and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are what? Opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
but the fruit of the Spirit is, say them out loud together with me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, or goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, let's stop there for our reading this morning. And with respect to this ongoing covert war within the life of every believer, I just want to raise the question this morning, how in the world do we win it? As we seek to live in this life of freedom purchased for us by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and as we face struggle every day, led by the devil and his minions who wage war against us and appeal to us through temptation to our flesh, which still hangs around like a bad shadow. How do we win this war within? Well, it's here that Paul offers us a bit of help in Galatians chapter 5, and he does so by giving us something of a battle plan for consistently winning the war within. So let me give you three things along those lines this morning that could be helpful for us. First is a challenge to know your adversary. You've got to know your adversary. And our adversary, of course, is what Paul calls the flesh, the flesh. Now, we made an overture to the flesh in our study last Sunday, namely that the flesh here is not so much referring to your physical body, though you can't totally eliminate the body because the sinful nature and the devil will appeal to your sinful nature, and usually that appeal will have something to do with a sin you commit that involves the body. But that's not fundamentally what Paul's talking about. He's using the word flesh in a spiritual sense more than anything else. And he's talking about that old sinful nature, the you that you used to be before you met the Lord, the you that was motivated by sin, the you that loved sin, the you that didn't have a problem with sin, the you that was in Adam instead of in Christ, that old you that lived for self, did what you wanted to do, couldn't care less what anybody else thought, much less the Lord. Sometimes it's called the sinful nature, and it's that part of you that even though Christ has defeated it through His death, burial, and resurrection, it's, it's sure enough defeated, and we have been delivered from it, but just not practically on an everyday basis. It still hangs around, and it still causes trouble because the Lord has left us in a very broken world, and we're still broken people. We're forgiven people. <clears throat> we're transformed people. We're liberated people, but we're still broken people. And verse 17 highlights the nature of the struggle. Let's look at verse 17 again. For the desires of the what? Flesh are against the what? Spirit. So there you've got the language of apposition and opposition in the same phrase. The desires of the flesh, and believers still have them, are against the desires of the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing what you want to do. A great commentary on that verse is Paul's personal testimony in the seventh chapter of Romans. We don't have time to read it this morning, but there you see a very honest Paul saying, I struggle with this just like all of you all. The stuff I want to do, I so often find myself not doing. The stuff I ought not be doing is the very stuff I find myself sometimes actually doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of flesh? 
So even the Apostle Paul is a mature believer, battled with this war within, this opposition of flesh versus spirit. That's the reality. You have to know your adversary. And frankly, identifying the flesh is not all that hard. The flesh, by the way, you're in a battle, you wear one uniform, but the flesh wears another uniform, and it's not hard to identify it. Paul says here in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are what? Say it out loud. Evident, obvious. You don't need to be a biblical scholar to identify what's anti-God in terms of personal behavior. And then having made the statement that this is an obvious thing, he lists 15 behavioral practices, 15 traits that reflect a life lived in the flesh. How do you know if you're living according to the flesh? Well, this is kind of a representative sample of things that come out of a fleshly life. It's called a vice list, and they're all over the New Testament. They don't always read the same. No single vice list is exhaustive in terms of what it lists there as behavioral characteristics. And this one in Galatians 5 is no different. In fact, at the end of the list in verse 21, he'll add to it. He's listing one thing after another, but then did you notice he said, and things like these. It's like, okay, how many other things could be included? Probably a bunch. It's just a representative list. But the ones that he does list here is significant, and I barely have time to even mention them. We surely don't have time to do word studies on them this morning. But here's what I've done to kind of help get your mind around them. I've grouped them into four larger headings. The first involves sexual sin. And whenever you read a vice list in the New Testament, particularly from the Apostle Paul, even from Jesus, it always begins with matters of sex. It's the strongest urge of the fleshly life. And so they always tend to begin right here. Paul mentions three, sexual immorality, which is the Greek word pornia. Pornia, what does that sound like? Pornography is where the word comes from. It's a 30,000-foot it's a term, a general term that's meant to include any kind of sexual activity beyond biblical marriage. The marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, that's where sex is to be uh, enjoyed. And anything outside of that falls under this heading, and it's very displeasing to God. He adds to that two other terms, impurity, which is a word that literally means uncleanness. And Paul has in his mind all of that lewd stuff that went down at the pagan temples that always involved the most grotesque kinds of sexual activity, uncleanness. And then he mentions sensuality. That's just an open, flaunted display of sexual sin. Think Bourbon Street in New Orleans on Mardi Gras. And that's what the idea of sensuality conveys, sexual sins. And then Paul mentions religious sins, two of them specifically. The first is idolatry. That's just creating a God substitute. That violates the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other what? <clears throat> God's before me. And, it, and even good things can be an idol. Doesn't have to be a statue. It could just, it'd be something that you've just turned into an idol. That could be a really good thing. If you love it more than you love God, it's an idol. You might be married to your idol. You might be driving your idol. You might be living in your idol. You might vacation in your idol. You see what I'm saying? All this stuff, potentially good stuff. But if you love it more than you love God, it's become a God substitute and it's no good. That's acting out of the flesh. 
He mentions sorcery here, which was very prominent uh, in the first century, and it's still kind of prominent in the world today. That's an interesting word study. That's the Greek word pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it, primarily because of, of the mixture of uh, compounds and things of that nature. That's what these guys did. Next time you go into your pharmacist, say, hey, how, how's the witch doctoring business going on? You know, see what kind of uh, look you get. No, our pharmacists today do really good work. We've got pharmacists in our church. We got one of them back over here this morning, just became one. And they do great work, but they do it legitimately. They're not doing it under the rubric of the occult. Everybody with me? And that's what was happening back in Paul's time. They were doing the devil's work with this kind of stuff, making potions and poisons to affect all kinds of different desired outcomes, not to fix a medical problem. And so there are religious sins as well that can be from the flesh. Third, there's a long laundry list of what we would call relational sins, eight of them to be precise. This is the longest portion of the list here today. And every one of them that he lists here reflects the brokenness that's inherent in human relationships. It describes why we have to fight so hard to make relationships work. You can Listen, you can be in a friendship for a long period of time. All you got to do is say the wrong thing and the person turns and walks away. Doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Would you all agree with me that re- having healthy relationships is a battle? It's a constant battle, primarily because we're still so bound up itself. We want what we want out of the relationship. We're more concerned about outcomes we define. We're more concerned about rights than about responsibilities. And so that's why this is such a long list, because all of these relational sins are born from a prideful, selfish heart that's focused on me, enmity, strife, fits of anger. Those three words are all related, and they they reflect how teed off we can become. I don't even have time to go with how angry a culture we're living in right now. Just teed off at something all the time, the smallest things usually. Then he mentions jealousy and envy, two sides of the same coin. Jealousy is mean and envy is green. They're cousins. These are mean sins. These are sins that make you upset because you're somebody that you know has been successful. You can't handle somebody else being successful, you get jealous. And then you get angry. And then you create a wedge and you give them the silent trip. That's a mean sin coming from a mean-spirited heart. It's just a problem when you get upset somebody else is doing well or that the Lord has chosen to bless somebody else in a way that maybe he hasn't chosen to bless you quite yet. Then there's this argumentative spirit that causes you to take sides, separate yourself from others, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. This this crazy political stuff has caused all of that right there to happen in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's turned brothers and sisters into rivals, into rivals. It's taken the unity of the spirit and created a dissenting spirit. It's taken our oneness and created divisions from it. Man, social media has just made all that worse. Just say the wrong thing on social. Have y'all ever said the wrong thing on social media? 
I was just trying to be funny. Don't you know? No, man, people write you off. They don't even ask for clarity. They just write you off. And then finally, Paul lists a couple of what we might call recreational sins, drunkenness and orgies. There's a reason that Paul says these things are evident, right? Do I have to explain what that is? That's just going over the top, misusing alcohol. You, we could include misusing drugs for that matter. Orgies are kind of the wild parties that often form around the out-of-control use of alcohol and drugs, and that's why Paul lists them together. It's a very prominent thing in the sexually promiscuous, openly sexually promiscuous world of his first century day and age. And so these kinds of things are definitely inappropriate for the people of God who are supposed to be marked by what? Can I say it in the house of the Lord? Holiness. The Bible says without holiness, no one shall see the Lord How in the wide world could anybody expect having a tight, maturing, growing relationship with the Lord when their lifestyle is marked by such as this? Impossible. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. You need the positional holiness that can only come through the indwelling Christ, but to fellowship with God, you need practical holiness that comes from an everyday walk with him. And so, Paul's concerned about this kind of behavior, marking people who would claim to belong to Christ. And notice that it comes with a very solemn warning in verse 21, I warn you, this is where the red lights are flashing and the buzzer's going off, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not what? Say it out loud, will not inherit the kingdom of of God. That's other word. Uh, that's that's the phrase he uses. In other words, if your life looks more like this, it'll be very difficult to convince an objective observer that you've been transformed by the indwelling Christ. That you reflect the holy character of God. Can I just say it this morning? Paul, Paul's <laughs> Paul's emphasis in Galatians in the first four chapters is this, good works cannot get you into heaven. His emphasis in the last two chapters is, but good, evil works can surely keep you out of heaven. Good works can't get you in, bad works can keep you out. And so you need to be very careful how you live. Not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Now, let me just add this morning before I move on, that, that does not mean that a born-again believer cannot occasionally commit one or more of these sins. You will. I have. But I'm talking about occasionally. I'm not talking about living like this and having no problem with it. Does that make sense? This is talking about a habitual lifestyle. This is the way you live typically. This tends to mark your life. And you don't have any problem with that. No, believers still commit some of these sins. But you, like I said last week, you're going to know it when you do. Holy Spirit is indwelling you. Christ resides in you. You can't sin and get away with it anymore. You're going to loathe it. You're going to know it. You're going to hate it. 
And there's going to well up within you this conviction that comes from a Holy, from a Holy Spirit who's not going to tolerate sin in the life of one of his chosen vessels. So it's going to drive you back to the cross. It's going to drive you to repentance and forgiveness of sin. That makes sense? So winning the battle uh, within means knowing your adversary. It is the flesh, and it's not hard to identify when you're living in the flesh. At the same time, you need, secondly, to understand your objective. Winning the war within begins with knowing your adversary, but then you've got to understand your objective. And the objective for a believer is not self-centered works, it's spirit-produced fruit. That's the objective. Jesus said that a tree is known by its what? By its fruit. Bad tree produces bad fruit, sour fruit, inedible fruit. A good tree produces what? Good fruit, that's right, sweet fruit, acceptable fruit. In verses 22 and 23, one of the most important statements Paul makes not only in Galatians, this is one of the most important statements he makes in the Bible. Paul turns from the works of the flesh, a vice list, to the fruit of the Spirit, which is what we might call a virtue list. He's already spoken of a believer having received the Holy Spirit, we, did, we receive the Spirit at salvation. He's already spoken of the importance of a believer being led by the Spirit. That's automatic. If the Spirit is living within you, the Spirit will lead you. He will do it. That's what He's there to do. But then He's also talked about walking by the Spirit, and that's what we have to decide to do. And that kind of fruit that's produced in the life of a born-again believer is the primary way that you and I know that we're walking by the Spirit of God. How do I know that I'm walking by the Spirit? You know it by what's coming out of your life. And Paul here lists nine identifying marks of a Spirit-controlled life. And again, we don't have time this morning to fully unpack each one individually, but I am going to do that in our next Pastor's Bible Study Series at Midweek at Hillcrest on Wednesday night. We're finishing up 2 Timothy over in the Northwest Hall, and as soon as we're done with that, we're going to do a nine-week series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to take them one per week, and we're going to fully develop what each one of these are and why they matter and what they look like in great detail. This morning, I only have time to mention them again. Let me just group them together in triads this morning to help you get your arms around them. The first three concern fruitfulness in relation to God. Fruitfulness in relation to God. That's love, joy, and peace. These are gifts that we receive from God as a result of being born again by faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God indwelling us. The agape love, we could, I did one time, I did like a 10 or 12-week series just on biblical love years ago. So there's a lot we could say about love. That's unconditional love. The love of God toward you is agape love, and it's the kind of love that we are to have toward one another, that kind of unconditional, unqualified love where it has nothing to do with the worth of the recipient or whether or not you get love back in return. You just set your love on them and you determine to love them. You choose to love them as God has chosen to love you. And then there's joy, and that's the believer's state of being in the Lord. It's marked by good cheer, 
and a hopeful optimism that's there regardless of the circumstances. You can be joyful even while you're not happy because the joy of the Lord is within you. The Holy Spirit resides. So it's a state of being that's marked by the presence of God in a believer's life. And peace is the condition that exists now because of salvation between me and God. Before Christ, hostility. I'm separated from God, alienated from God, an object of the wrath of God. With Christ in me now, I'm accepted by God, and the hostility has been replaced by what? Peace. Therefore, Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Fruitfulness in our relation to God. Then there's fruitfulness in our relation to others. Patience, kindness, goodness. This is how we relate to one another. And now we all struggle with that first one. Amen. Patient. You know what a patient person is? And who among us doesn't struggle with patience? We all do. It's a person with a long fuse. A long fuse. Now, remember in that vice list we just read? Fits of anger. That's the flesh. That's a person with what kind of fuse? Short fuse. So you see the difference? Man, when the Spirit is controlling your life, you just don't blow up on a whim. You say, well, you don't understand. I'm Irish. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. Don't hand me that mess. Well, I get it. It's in my DNA code. My granddaddy was a hothead, and I guess I'm just like him. Well, you need to get over that. You say, well, I, I can't change it. Well, no, you can't, but Jesus can. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. And the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Kindness. This wonderful, gentle disposition that's marked by serving hard and a willingness to help other people. We talked last Sunday about how we can know we're walking with, uh, by the Spirit by serving others. Loving and serving others. Well, that's kindness. And then there's goodness. Y'all ever notice that the Bible doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is greatness? Then that's what we chase after. That's what we buy all the books in the leadership section of the business section at Barnes and Noble. How to be a great leader, how to be a great person, how to be a great mom, a great dad. I'm not opposed to all of that. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Would to God that God's people majored on goodness after the goodness of God, a kind and a generous spirit. Wish I had more time. The final three traits reflect a fruitfulness in relation to ourselves, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, self-control. This gentle, humble spirit, trustworthy and loyal, that's faithfulness gentle and humble. Jesus said that about his own heart. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Learn from me and you'll find rest for your souls. And then self-control, moderation, sobriety. So the spirit control life, here's the thing. Bottom line is the life look like Jesus. You want to know what is the fruit of the spirit? Just read the four gospels. Watch Jesus because all in the world this list is is a character reflection of our incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. 
over the course of his three-year public ministry. The Spirit-controlled life looks like our Lord. And a life that looks like this is a life that's walking in freedom and walking in victory. This is how you know. So winning the war within means you got to know your adversary, the flesh, the works of the flesh. You have to understand your objective, the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, and real quickly, you have to strategize for victory to win the war within. God's grace is great, but you've got to put legs to that grace. There's some choices that you have to make, my brothers and my sisters. There is a degree of cooperation next. Now, you don't have to cooperate with the Spirit to be saved. That's all of God. But to walk by the Spirit requires a degree of cooperation. You have to abide in Christ, and you have to walk by the Spirit of God, and you have to be the one to make decisions that reflect well on the holiness of God. And Paul gives us, as he concludes here, two things that believers have to do in order to live like Christ and look like Christ. The first, to use Paul's own words, is here's what you got to do, crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. That's verse 24. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires Because if you don't crucify it on a daily basis, what's going to come out of your life is going to look like the first list, not the second list. Everybody tracking with me? No, you got to crucify the flesh. In one sense, you have crucified the flesh when you were saved in that it has no bearing on your eternal life. Christ has, in that sense, defeated it forever. But at the same time, it's something that has to continually be done in the life of a believer. Because the same Paul who told the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, is the same Paul who told the Galatians, put to death, therefore, the things of the flesh. And so he says, I have done it already, but I have to do it every day too. Does that make sense? One is spiritual and eternal. Christ accomplished that forever. But I have to make some daily decisions in order to reflect the Christ that is in me. You have to crucify the flesh. I know the Bible says thou shalt not kill, but you've got to kill the flesh. This is an exception. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And he told that to believers. You have to crucify the flesh, and you have to do it daily. Because the thing I found out is my sinful nature has a way of climbing down off of the cross and worming its way back into my life. So crucify the flesh. That's one way you strategize for victory. The second way, Paul says, and more positively, walk by the Spirit. This is a redo of what we introduced last week. But you're not going to win the battle over the flesh unless you learn consistently to walk by the Spirit. That's verse 16, key verse. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the what? Say it out loud. The desires of the flesh. So to use a military concept, you got to stay in formation and let the Holy Spirit lead you. The Holy Spirit will lead you, but stay in formation and keep in step with the Spirit. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. Some modern translations will say, keep in step with the Spirit. 
He'll provide the leadership. He'll issue the commands. He'll say, don't go there or walk over here. He'll let you know it. He'll call the cadence. But you and I have to stay in step. Now, practically speaking, and I'm going to close with this. I'm going to give you some practical words of wisdom from what little bit I've learned in my own Christian life. Several ways to keep in step with the Spirit. I'm going to leave you with a very practical word. I want you to write these four things down. One, know your Bible. Know your Bible. You will never walk in the Spirit if you don't know the Word of God. You got to know what to obey. Psalm 119 is a great help here, longest chapter in the Bible, written by a psalmist who was really struggling with life. And he asked there in verse 9, how can a young man, or an old man even for that matter, he was young, how can a young man keep his way what? Pure answer to the question by guarding it according to your what? According to your word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. You got to know your Bible. Second, abide in Christ. The most important principle in the Bible is that command of Jesus to abide in Him. That means living in daily communion with Christ. It involves the ministry of prayer and meditation and focusing on the Lord, talking to the Lord, listening to the Lord, meditating on the Word. And when you do that, man, there's no way you can lose. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much what? Whoever abides in me and I in him, that's the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Know your Bible, abide in Christ. Another practical way to walk by the Spirit is control your mind. Control your mind. Have you all ever found that as the mind goes, so goes the body? I don't think... When you sin, I don't, think every, I don't think anybody ever commits just one sin at a time. You always commit at least two sins at a time. Because before you ever sin with your body, you first sin in the mind. Now, it happens here before it happens here. And that's why you've got you to learn to control your mind, how you think, what you put into your mind, what you allow to come into your mind. Nobody engages in bad behavior who hasn't first engaged in reckless thinking. Romans 8 and 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And this is why knowing your Bible goes hand in hand with controlling your mind. Because when you read your Bible, that's good stuff getting into the mind and heart. Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are where? Above, not on things that are on the... So you've got to win the thought battle if you're going to win the battle over the flesh. Control your mind. Then finally, be accountable. Be accountable. You can't engage the battle alone. That's why God gives us the church. And accountability to others is just a huge factor if you're going to walk in freedom and live in victory. The church is important. Your connect group is important. Being in a D group, a really small group for high stakes accountability, very important. Being in a growth group, 
I'm just saying you'll more consistently walk by the Spirit when you connect your life with other believers and say, here's the deal. I'm just not strong enough to do this as a Lone Ranger. And so don't be afraid to ask me tough questions. You, you want people in your life that will keep you sharp. Iron is supposed to sharpen iron in the kingdom. Ask me tough questions. Ask me what I'm reading. Ask me what I'm watching on Netflix. Put me in a position where I either have to be honest or lie to your face. Because I want to reflect the holiness of God, and I'm probably not going to do that very consistently unless somebody's helping me. Don't let me drift in my walk with the Lord And I'm just saying for people here this morning who find that they just drift back into the flesh over and over again, the lack of accountability may be why. No, the life of a disciple is a life of freedom, but it's also a life of conflict. It's a war between the flesh and the spirit, a war within. Good news, it's a winnable war. Greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. But you can't win it alone. And that's why knowing the marching orders are critical. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is God's Word, and all God's people said.